Chapter Six of Black Ivory by R. M. Ballantyne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six describes several new and surprising incidents, which must be read to be fully appreciated. To travel with one's mouth and eyes open to nearly their utmost width in a state of surprised stupefaction may be unavoidable, but it cannot be said to be either becoming or convenient. Attention in such a case is apt to be diverted from the business in hand, and flies have a tendency to immolate themselves in the throat. Nevertheless, inconvenient though the condition was, our friend Disco Lillehammer was so afflicted with astonishment at what he heard and saw in this new land that he was constantly engaged in swallowing flies and running his canoe among shallows and rushes, insomuch that he at last resigned the steering oar until familiarity with present circumstances should tone him down to a safe condition of equanimity. And no wonder that Disco was surprised. No wonder that his friend Harold Seadrift shared in his astonishment and delight, for they were at once, and for the first time in their lives, plunged into the very heart of jungle life in equatorial Africa. Those who have never wandered far from the comparatively tame regions of our temperate zone can form but a faint conception of what it is to ramble in the tropics, and therefore can scarcely be expected to sympathize fully with the mental condition of our heroes as they ascended the Zambezi. Everything was so thoroughly strange, sights and sounds so vastly different from what they had been accustomed to see and hear, that it seemed as though they had landed on another planet. Trees, shrubs, flowers, birds, beasts, insects, and reptiles, all were unfamiliar, except indeed one or two of the more conspicuous trees and animals, which had been so imprinted on their minds by means of nursery picture-books that, on first beholding them, Disco unconsciously paid these books the compliment of saying that the animals was uncommon like the pictures. Disco's mental condition may be said, for the first two or three days, to have been one of gentle ever-flowing surprise, studded thickly with little bursts of keen astonishment. The first part of the river ran between mangrove jungle, in regard to which he remarked that them there trees had legs like crabs, in which observation he was not far wrong, for when the tide was out the roots of the mangroves rose high out of the mud, forming supports, as it were, for the trees to stand on but it was the luxuriance of the vegetation that made the most powerful impression on the travellers. It seemed as if the various groups and families of the vegetable kingdom had been warmed by the sun into a state of unwanted affection, for everything appeared to entertain the desire to twine round and embrace everything else. One magnificent screw-palm in particular was so overwhelmed by affectionate parasites that his natural shape was almost entirely concealed. Others of the trees were decked with orchilla-weed. There were ferns so gigantic as to be almost worthy of being styled trees, and palm-bushes so sprawling as to suggest the idea of huge vegetable spiders. Bright yellow fruit gleamed among the graceful green leaves of the mangroves, while date-palms gave variety to the scene, if that had been needed, which it was not and masses of umbraceous plants with large yellow flowers grew along the banks, while down among the underwood 
giant roots rose in fantastic convolutions above ground, as if the earth were already too full, and there wasn't room for the whole of them. There was an antediluvian magnificence, a prehistoric snakiness, a sort of primeval running to seedness, which filled Harold and Disco with feelings of awe and induced a strange, almost unnatural tendency to regard Adam and Eve as their contemporaries. Animal life was not wanting in this paradise. Frequently did our seamen give vent to, "'Hallo! There they go! Look out for the little un with a long tail!' and similar expressions, referring, of course, to his favorite monkeys, which ever and anon peered out upon the strangers with looks of intensity, for whatever their expression might be, sadness, grief, interrogation, wrath, surprise, it was always in the superlative degree. There were birds also innumerable. One, styled the king-hunter, sang wild exultant airs, as if it found king-hunting to be an extremely exhilarating occupation, though what sort of kings it hunted we cannot tell. Perhaps it was the king of beasts, perhaps the kingfisher, a bright specimen of which was frequently seen to dart out from the banks, but we profess ignorance on this point. There were fish-hawks also, magnificent fellows which sat in regal dignity on the tops of the mangrove trees, and the glossy ibis, with others of the feathered tribe too numerous to mention. Large animals also were there in abundance, though not so frequently seen as those which have been already mentioned. Disco occasionally made known the fact that such or something unusual had transpired, by the sudden and violent exclamation of, "'What's that?' in a voice so loud that that, whatever it might be, sometimes bolted or took to flight before anyone else caught sight of it. "'Hello!' he exclaimed on one such occasion, as the canoes turned a bend of the river. "'What now?' demanded Harold, looking at his companion to observe the direction of his eyes. "'I'm a Dutchman!' exclaimed Disco in a hoarse whisper that might have been heard half a mile off, if it's not a zebra. So it is. My rifle. Look sharp, said Harold eagerly. The weapon was handed to him, but before it could be brought to bear, the beautiful striped creature had tossed its head, snorted, whisked its tail, kicked up its heels, and dashed into the jungle. Give way, lads, let's after him, shouted Disco, turning the canoe's bow to shore. Hold on, cried Harold. You might as well go after a needle in a haystack or a locomotive. So I might, admitted Disco, with a mortified air, resuming his course, but it ain't in no reason to expect a feller to keep quiet when he sees one of the very pictures of his childhood, so to speak, come alive and kick up its heels like that. Buffaloes were also seen in the grassy glades, but it proved difficult to come within range of them, also wart-hogs and three different kinds of antelope. Of these last Harold shot several, and they were found to be excellent food. Human beings were also observed, but those first encountered fled at the sight of the white men, as if they had met with their worst foes, and such was in very truth the case, if we may regard the Portuguese half-castes of that coast as white men. For these negroes were runaway slaves, who stood the chance of being shot or drowned or whipped to death if recaptured. Other animals they saw, some queer, some terrible, nearly all strange, and last, though not least, 
the hippopotamus. When Disco first saw this ungainly monster he was bereft of speech for some minutes. The usual hello stuck in his throat and well-nigh choked him. He could only gasp and point. "'Aye, there goes a hippopotamus,' said Harold, with the easy nonchalance of a man who had been to the zoological gardens and knew all about it. Nevertheless it was quite plain that Harold was much excited, for he almost dropped his oar overboard in making a hasty grasp at his rifle. Before he could fire the creature gaped wide, as if in laughter, and dived. "'Unfortunate,' said Harold, in a philosophically careless tone. "'Never mind, we shall see lots more of them.' "'Ugliness embodied,' said Disco, heaving a deep sigh. "'But him's good for eat,' said Antonio, smacking his lips. "'Is he?' demanded Disco of Jumbo, whose enjoyment of the sailor's expressive looks was so great that whenever the latter opened his lips the former looked back over his shoulder with a broad grin of expectation. "'Oh, yes,' "'De hippotamus am first-rate grub for dis year boy,' replied the negro, rolling his red tongue inside his mouth suggestively. "'He never eats man, does he?' inquired Disco. "'Never,' replied Antonio. "'He looks as if he might,' returned the seaman. "'Anyhow, he's got a mouth big enough to do it. You're quite sure he don't, I suppose.' "'Kite sure and certain, but me have seen him tackmans,' said Antonio. "'Tackmans?' "'What do you mean by that?' "'Tack him,' repeated Antonio. "'Go at him's canoe or boat, bump with him's head, dash in de timbers, capsize, so's man hab to swim shore, all has got clear ob de crocodiles.' While Disco was meditating on this unpleasant trait of character in the hippopotamus, the specimen which they had just seen, or some other member of his family, having compassion no doubt on the seaman's ignorance, proceeded to illustrate its method of attack then and there by suddenly rising under the canoe with such force that its head and shoulders shot high out of the water into which it fell with a heavy splash harold's rifle being ready he fired just as it was disappearing whether he hit it or not is uncertain but next moment the enraged animal rose again under disco's canoe which it nearly lifted out of the water in its efforts to seize it in its mouth Fortunately the canoe was too flat for its jaws to grip. The monster's blunt teeth were felt, as well as heard, to grind across the planks, and Disco, being in the stern, which was raised highest, was almost thrown overboard by the jerk. Rising about two yards off, the hippopotamus looked savagely at the canoe, and was about to dive again when Harold gave it a second shot. The large gun being fortunately ready, had been handed to him by one of the Makololo men. The heavy ball took effect behind the eye and killed the animal almost instantaneously. The hippopotamus usually sinks when shot dead, but in this case they were so near that, before it had time to sink, Zambo, assisted by his friend Jumbo, made a line fast to it, and it was finally dragged to the shore. The landing, however, was much retarded by the crocodiles, which now showed themselves for the first time, and kept tugging and worrying the carcass much as a puppy tugs and worries a lady's muff, affording Disco and his friend strong reason to congratulate themselves that the canoe had not been overturned. The afternoon was pretty well advanced when the landing was accomplished on a small sandy island, and as the spot was suitable for encamping they determined to remain there for the night 
and feast. There are many points of resemblance between savage and civilized festivities. Whether the performers be the black sons of Africa or the white fathers of Europe, there is the same powerful tendency to eat too much, and the same display of good fellowship, for it is an indisputable fact that feeding man is amiable, unless indeed he be dyspeptic. There are also, however, various points of difference. The savage, owing to the amount of fresh air and exercise which he is compelled to take, usually eats with greater appetite, and knows nothing of equine dreams or sleepless nights. On the whole we incline to the belief that, despite his lack of refinement and ceremony, the savage has the best of it in this matter. Disco Lillehammer's visage, during the progress of that feast, formed a study worthy of a physiognomist. Every new achievement, whether trifling or important, performed by the Makalolo triad, Jumbo, Zumbo, and Masiko, every fresh hippopotamus steak skewered and set up to roast by the half-caste brothers Jose and Oliveira, every lick bestowed on their greasy fingers by the Somali negroes Nakoda and Konda, and every sign of intense satisfaction heaved by the so-called freemen of Quilimane, Zongolo, and Mabruki was watched, commented on, and if we may say so, reflected in the animated countenance of the stout seaman with such variety of expression and such an interesting compound of grin and wrinkle, that poor Jumbo, who gazed at him over hippopotamus ribs and steak, and tried hard not to laugh, was at last compelled to turn away his eyes in order that his mouth might have fair play. But wonderful, sumptuous, and every way satisfactory though that feast was, it bore no comparison whatever to another feast carried on at the same time by another party, about fifty yards off, where the carcass of the hippopotamus had been left half in and half out of the water, for of course being fully more than a ton in weight, only a small portion of the creature was appropriated by the canoe-men. The negroes paid no attention whatever to this other festive party, but in a short time Disco turned his head to one side and said, "'Why, what's that splashin' I hears goin' on over there?' I suspect it must be some beast or other that has got hold of the carcass, replied Harold, who was himself busy with a portion of the same. Yes, dead em crocodiles got him, said Antonio, with his mouth full, very full. You don't say so, said Disco, washing down the steak with a brimming cup of tea. No one appeared to think it worth while to asservate the fact, for it was self-evident. Several crocodiles were supping, and in doing so they tore away at the carcass with such violence and lashed the water so frequently with their powerful tails as to render it clear that their feast necessitated laborious effort and seemed less a recreation than a duty. Moreover they sat at their meat like insatiable gourmands so long into the night that supper became transmuted into breakfast, and Harold's rest was greatly disturbed thereby. He was too sleepy and lazy, however, to rise and drive them away. Next morning the travelers started early, being anxious to pass, as quietly as possible, a small Portuguese town, near to which it was said a party of runaway slaves and rebels against the government were engaged in making depredations. When gray dawn was beginning to rise above the treetops they left their encampment in profound silence 
and rowed upstream as swiftly as possible. They had not advanced far when, on turning a point covered with tall reeds, Zambo, who was bowman in the leading canoe, suddenly made a sign to the men to cease rowing. "'What's the matter?' whispered Harold. The negro pointed through the reeds and whispered the single word, "'Canoe.' By this time the other canoe had ranged up alongside, and after a brief consultation between Harold and Disco, it was decided that they should push gently into the reeds and wait till the strange canoe should pass. But a few seconds sufficed to show that the two men who paddled it did not intend to pass down the river, for they pushed straight out towards the deepest part of the stream. They were, however, carried down so swiftly by the current that they were brought quite near to the point of rushes where our travellers lay concealed, so near that their voices could be distinctly heard. They talked in Portuguese. Antonio muttered a few words, and Harold observed that there was a good deal of excitement in the looks of his men. "'What's the matter?' he asked anxiously. Antonio shook his head. "'Dat nigger goin' to be drownded,' he said. "'Bad nigger. Obstropolis nigger, s'pose.' "'What?' exclaimed Disco in a whisper. "'Goin' to be drownded? What do ye mean?' Antonio proceeded to explain that it was a custom amongst the Portuguese slave-owners there, when they found any of their slaves intractable or refractory, to hire some individuals who, for a small sum, would bind and carry off the incorrigible for the purpose of making away with him. One method of effecting this was to tie him in a sack and throw him into the river, the crocodiles making quite sure that the unfortunate being should never again be seen, either alive or dead. But before Antonio had finished his brief explanation he was interrupted by an exclamation from the horrified Englishmen as they beheld the two men in the canoe raise something between them which for a moment appeared to struggle violently. "'Shove off! Give way!' shouted Harold and Disco in the same breath, each thrusting with his paddle so vigorously that the two canoes shot out like arrows into the stream. At the same instant there was a heavy plunge in the water beside the strange canoe, and the victim sank. Next moment one end of the sack rose to the surface. Both Harold and Disco made straight towards it, but it sank again, and the two murderers paddled to the shore, on which they drew up their canoe, intending to take to the bush, if necessary, for safety. Once again the sack rose not more than three yards from Disco's canoe. The bold seaman knew that if it disappeared a third time there would be little chance of its rising again. He was prompt in action and daring to recklessness. In one moment he had leaped overboard, dived, caught the sack in his powerful grasp, and bore it to the surface. The canoe had been steered for him. The instant he appeared, strong and ready hands laid hold of him and his burden, and dragged them both inboard. "'Cut the lashings and give him air!' cried Disco, endeavoring to find his clasp-knife, but one of the men quickly obeyed the order and opened the sack. A groan of horror and pity burst from the seaman when he beheld the almost insensible form of a powerful negro, whose back was lacerated with innumerable ragged cuts and covered with clotted blood. "'Where are the—' He stopped short on looking round, and observing that the two men were standing on the shore, seized the double-barreled gun. The stream had carried the canoe a considerable distance below the spot where the murder had been attempted, but they were still within range. Without a moment's hesitation Disco took deliberate aim at them and fired. 
Fortunately for him and his party, Disco was a bad shot. Nevertheless the bullet struck so close to the feet of the two men that it drove the sand and pebbles into their faces. They turned at once and fled, but before they reached the cover of the bushes the second barrel was fired, and the bullet whistled close enough over their heads greatly to accelerate their flight. The negroes opened their great round eyes and appeared awestruck at this prompt display of a thirst for vengeance on the part of one who had hitherto shown no other disposition than hilarity, fun, and good humor. Harold was greatly relieved to observe Disco's failure, for if he had hit either of the fugitives the consequences might have been very disastrous to their expedition. On being partially revived and questioned it turned out that the poor fellow had been whipped almost to death for refusing to be the executioner in whipping his own mother. This was a refinement in cruelty on the part of these professedly Christian Portuguese, which our travelers afterwards learned was by no means uncommon. We are told by those who know that region well, and whose veracity is unquestionable, that the Portuguese on the east coast of Africa live in constant dread of their slaves rising against them. No wonder, considering the fiendish cruelties to which they subject them. In order to keep them in subjection they underfeed them, and if any of them venture to steal coconuts from the trees the owners thereof are at liberty to shoot them and throw them into the sea. Slaves, being cheap there and plentiful, are easily replaced, hence a cruel owner never hesitates. If a slave is refractory and flogging only makes him worse, his master bids the overseer flog him until he will require no more. Still further to keep them in subjection, the Portuguese then endeavor to eradicate from them all sympathy with each other and all natural affection by the following means. If a woman requires to be flogged, her brother or son is selected to do it. Fathers are made to flog their daughters, husbands their wives, and if two young negroes of different sexes are observed to show any symptoms of growing attachment for each other, these two are chosen for each other's executioners. Note. Sea Travels in Eastern Africa by Lyons MacLeod, Esquire, FRGS, and late Her Britannic Majesty's Council at Mozambique, Volume 1, pages 274 to 277, and Volume 2, page 27. End of note. The poor wretch whom we have just described as having been saved from death, to which he had been doomed for refusing to become the executioner of his own mother, was placed as tenderly and comfortably as circumstances would admit of in the bottom of the canoe, and then our travelers pushed on with all haste, anxious to pass the town before the two fugitives could give the alarm. They were successful in this, probably because the two men may have hid themselves for some time in the jungle, under the impression that the exasperated Englishmen might be searching for them on shore. Giving themselves time only to take a hurried meal in the middle of the day, our travelers rode continuously till sunset when, deeming it probable that pursuit, if undertaken at all, must have been abandoned, they put ashore on the right bank of the river and encamped. When the sufferer had been made as comfortable as circumstances would allow, for he was much weakened by loss of blood as well as agonized with pain, and after he had been refreshed with food and some warm tea, Harold questioned him through the interpreter 
as to his previous history. At first the man was brusque in his manner, and inclined to be sulky, for a long course of cruelty had filled him with an intense hatred of white men. Indeed, an embittered and desperate spirit had begun to induce callous indifference to all men, whether white or black. But kind treatment to which he was evidently unaccustomed, and generous diet which was obviously new to him, had a softening influence, and when Harold poured a small glass of rum into his tea, and Antonio added a lump of sugar, and Disco pressed him tenderly to drink it of, which he did, the effect was very decided. The settled scowl on his face became unsettled, and gradually melting away was replaced by a milder and more manly look. By degrees he became communicative, and bit by bit his story was drawn from him. It was brief, but very sorrowful. His name, he said, was Chimbolo. He belonged to a tribe which lived far inland, beyond the Manganja country, which latter was a country of hills. He was not a Manganja man, but he had married a Manganja woman. One night he, with his wife and mother, was paying a visit to the village of his wife's relations, when a band of slave-hunters suddenly attacked the village. They were armed with guns and at once began to murder the old people and capture the young. Resistance was useless. His relatives were armed only with bows and spears. Being taken by surprise they all fled in terror, but were pursued and few escaped. His wife, he said, and a scowl of terrible ferocity crossed Chimbolo's face as he said it, was about to become a mother at the time. He seized her in his arms on the first alarm and fled with her into the bush where he concealed her, and then hurried back to aid his relations, but met them, old and young, strong and feeble, flying for their lives. It was not possible to rally them. He therefore joined in the flight. While running a bullet grazed his head and stunned him. Presently he recovered and rose, but in a few minutes was overtaken and captured. A slave-stick was put on his neck, and along with a number of Manganja men, women, and children, he was driven down to the coast and sold with a number of other men and women, among whom was his own mother, to a Portuguese merchant on the coast near the East Wava mouth of the Zambezi. There he was found to be of a rebellious spirit, and at last on positively refusing to lash his mother, his master ordered him to be whipped to death, but changing his mind before the order had been quite carried out, he ordered him to be bound hand and foot and taken away in a sack. As to his wife, he had never heard of her since that night which was about two years past. He knew that she had not been found, because he had not seen her amongst the other captives. If they had found her, they would have been sure to carry her off because, here Chambolo's visage again grew diabolical, she was young, he said, and beautiful. When all this had been translated into bad English by Antonio, Harold asked if Chimbolo thought it probable that his wife was still alive in the Manganja Highlands. To this the former said that he thought it likely. Why then, said Disco, giving his right thigh a powerful slap, which was his favorite method of emphasizing a remark, what do ye say, sir, to lay our course for these same highlands and try for to find out this poor critter? Just what was running in my own mind, Disco, said Harold, musing over his supper. 
It does not make much difference what part of this country we go to, being all new to us, and as Antonio tells me the Manganja Highlands are up the Shire River, which was explored by Dr. Livingston not long ago, and is not distant many days' journey from this, I think we can't do better than go there. We shall have a good as well as a definite object in view. "'Very good, sir. I'm agreeable,' returned Disco, reaching forth his pewter plate. "'Another hunk of that potamus, Jumbo. It's better than salt junk any day. And I say, Jumbo, don't grin so much, else ye enlarge your pretty little mouth, which it'd be a pity.' "'Yes, sir,' replied Jumbo, becoming very grave all of a sudden. But on receiving a nod and an expressive wink from the seaman, he exploded again and rolled backward on the grass, in the performance of which act he capsized Zumbo's can of tea, whereupon Zumbo leaped upon him in wrath, and Masiko, as in duty bound, came to the rescue. "'Clap a stopper on your noise, will he?' cried Disco sternly, "'else you'll be bringing all the wild beasts in these parts down on us to see what it's all about.' "'That reminds me,' said Harold, when quiet was restored, "'that we must now organize ourselves into something of a fighting band, a company, as it were, of soldiers, and take our regular spell of watching by night, for, from all that I hear of the disturbed state of the country just now, with these runaway slaves and rebels it will be necessary to be on our guard. Of course, he added, smiling, I suppose I must be captain of the company, and you, Disco, shall be lieutenant. Not at all, replied the seaman, shaking his head, and frowning at Jumbo, whose brilliant teeth at once responded to the glance. "'Not at all. None of your sodgerin' for me. I never could abide the lobsters. Fust mate, sir, that's what I am, if I'm to be expected to do my duty.' "'Well, then, first mate be it,' rejoined Harold, "'and Antonio shall be sergeant-major.' "'Bosonin, bosonin,' suggested Disco. "'Keep up appearance, whatever ye do, and don't let the memory of salt water go down.' "'Very good,' said Harold, laughing. "'Then you shall be bosun.' Antonio, as well as Cook, and I will instruct you in the first part of your duty, which will be to keep watch for an hour while the rest of us sleep. My first mate will teach you the whistling part of a bosun's duty, if that should be required. Ah, and the roar, interrupted Disco. A bosun would be nothing without his roar. At that moment the woods around them were filled with a tremendous and very unexpected roar, which caused the whole party to spring up and induced the new boatswain to utter a yell of terror that would have done credit to the whistle of the most violent boatswain on the sea. Next moment the travelers were surrounded by a large and excited band of armed negroes. End of chapter 6 Recording by Tom Weiss Tom's Audiobooks.com